Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Ray Lawrence for a conversation about ancient Pompeii. Dr. Lawrence is Professor and Discipline Chair, Ancient History in the Department of History and Archaeology at Macquarie University, based in Australia. He has written many publications over his career, including authoring the book, Roman Pompeii, Space and Society, which was published by Routledge. And he's co-author of the book, Pompeii, The Living City, which was published by Orion Publishing. And Dr. Lawrence joins the show today from Sydney in Australia. Welcome to the show, Ray. Uh, hi, Andrew. So to start the conversation, Ray, and to create sufficient context and background, and then we can work our way into the details, uh, what was or is Pompeii? Pompeii is um, a settlement which was had human habitation from the Bronze Age uh, through to 79 CE when Vesuvius erupted and buried the city, destroyed the houses in probably one of the most dramatic disasters in human history, um, with multiple people were found who couldn't escape, multiple people, particularly pregnant women, were found um, as skeletons. There are a lot of fetuses because they simply couldn't leave. So we have a, a city which isn't a time capsule, it's actually a, a disaster archaeology site, but we have a long period of history which is suddenly stops in the first century CE, which is important for us to recover information prior to that date. So it's quite quite unique in that sense. If you were to describe it on a, on a map for everybody, um, how would you how would you describe where where it is? I think you would describe it as a place which is on the sea. It's not on the sea today. It's on it's on a river, the River Sarno. It's raised up on a hill. Um, overlooking a large plain which had, I mean, in the past has been malarial. And as a city, it's um, 66 hectares in total size within the walls and probably had a population of between 12 and 20,000 people. When does it become, come into the um, records in terms of either archaeological, if, if that can be uh, I'm sure it can be dated to, to a particular year um, with past excavations um, or, 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 or writing. So I'll, I'll put both out there. So, so what's, what's the, when, when does Pompeii as a community or a civilization co come into the records? I, I think we, we have a very clear indication that right back into the 600s BC, the settlement had been laid out. There's a, a, there's a fortification, nothing like the size which um, we see today in terms of height, but very definitely a walled fortified area um, in the 600s BC. If we're looking into the textual record, we have particular records about the Samnites taking over the town, for example, in the fourth century uh, BCE. So, and then if you wanted a dating horizon, um, Pompeii's involved in the revolt against Rome in uh, the 80s BC, 90s BC. And at that point, the Romans settled um, a, a number of 
probably veteran soldiers in the town alongside the Italian population. And at that point, it becomes a Roman colony. And that, from there um, to the eruption of Vesuvius, we see it as a Roman town. And as a reference point for, for everybody on related uh, episodes, so the show has covered the Samnites with Dr. Raphael Scopacasa uh, about a month ago. I don't have the exact date, but it is it is findable if anyone wants to learn more about uh, that uh, that that group of people. And uh, Dr. Seth Kendall was on the show, and that episode actually published a few days ago, and we covered the first year of the, the social war, which lasted about uh, five years. Um, right. That's it. Yeah, yeah, some relatedness there. Um, okay, so what's uh, so Ray? What what's what's known about the 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 word Pompeii? Uh, is it known where where it came from? Its etymology? Um, there there is there's there's a story um, of it comes from the word pompa, a procession, and it's it derives from um, when. Heracles or Hercules was coming back from Cadiz with the cattle, um, bringing the cattle on one of his labors. And he's said to bring uh, the cattle through Pompeii in a form of procession. And that's where the, the idea of Pompeii comes from as a word. And that's the etymology which is used. And we think that there is a festival of Hercules. Hercules is also meant to bring agriculture to the Bay of Naples as well. He's meant to be involved in the defeat of the giants, and the giants are associated with the Bay of Naples nearby. So that, that's kind of where the etymology comes from, and that, that gives us an idea whether that etymology is real or something which is made up at a later date. But it, it gives us a, an access into how the Pompeians saw their identity and really bound up with the tales of Hercules. What's the sources of those uh, traditions? I think we, we have a, a variety of sources. We can see some sources in Diodorus. We find sources in Strabo, for example, quite a few Greek writers. And that gives us some of these almost snippets. We don't have very much detail. And because Pompeii isn't the most famous city in the world, it's now famous today as one of the best known world heritage sites in the world. But at the time, it's not a very big town. It's, you walk across it in 15 minutes, so it's inconsequential in some ways. The, um, okay, so I think you mentioned the Samnites uh, gained hegemony of Pompeii in the 400s. Um, please uh, um, uh, uh, correct that in any way if needed in your, in your response, if I have the dates uh, inaccurate. The, um, so uh, you also said that I believe you, you mentioned the 5th century, it comes into the records. So, so before the Samnites arrived in, um, in Pompeii in that way, what's, what's known about their, that, that, their civilization at that point in time? And what I'm kind of getting at with that uh, question, because it does seem like there's, there's different, um, they, they evolve in, in different ways, um, with, with their society, they, they, they become Roman, it sounds like as well, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the ancient period. So, so before the Samnites arrive, uh, is anything known about their governance? Um, is anything known about their language? Like, did they have an indigenous language, etc.? 
I, I think we're, we're kind of stuck on this one. Um, we have indications of, of people from Etruria, Etruscans in Pompeii. We have indications of uh, interactions with the Greek population. So we actually don't really have a sort of monoculture. We have a mixing. Now, what we see in the Samnite period is this is the time when nearly everything which we see in Pompeii was built in the third through into the second century um, BCE. We see the huge walls being the construction of the walls around the city in a much bigger scale, um, considerably with towers, etc. So something which looks extremely well fortified and has quite a close relationship to some of the structures we see in Samnite hill forts rather than in terms of the construction which we see in the Greek cities of southern Italy. So, and we also see that this is the time when um, the grid of streets is really constructed. We find that this is the time of sort of monumental temple building begins. And also some of the more monumental houses are built in that period. So it's all kind of happening at once in that Samnite period. That the Samnite period, although the Samnites aren't really known for living in cities in the literary record, what we see in Pompeii is a, a very concerted announcement of urbanism, announcements of very, very sort of large walls, which is a, I mean, as much as a symbol as well as a defensive circuit of walls. And this gives us a sort of real coherence about Pompeii. This is when we see the Pompeii that we go and visit today. That's the point where the things which we see today become really visible. And so, so this really is quite... I mean, you could almost say that Pompeii is a Samnite city. It is made by them. Okay. So what's known about, um, did any of their, did, did any of their writings, is it known if, if, if anyone in that, in that period, so let's say the, the fifth century through the second century or around that period of time, um, is it known if there was writing at that given time and what's known about uh, uh, the, the language or languages that they would have spoken? I mean, the language which we have in Pompeii, which is not Latin, which survives to 79 CE, is there are a number of Oscan inscriptions. The Oscan language is found in multiple parts of Italy with a an Oscan script, which is quite different, has more in common with Punic um, lettering than with what we would call sort of typical Latin alphabet. And but there's a correspondence with some of the words. So, so in that sense, we have a strong idea of what they're doing. They have magistrates, for example. They have structures which are similar to Rome before the conquest by Rome, so and the imposition of Latin, which is one of the big consequences of the, um, you might say, Romanization of the first century CE. But in the second century CE, very definitely, they are setting up inscriptions in Oscan. They are doing all the things which we really associate with Roman urbanism in that context of Pompeii before it becomes a Roman city. So, for example, when we look at the Forum in Pompeii, quite often you see in architecture books and um, you sort of see this as a typical Roman Forum, but that Forum was there in the earlier period before the Roman conquest. So, so that also 
is part of the design of what we would call an Italian city. I mean, attributing the Sabines, we kind of being sucked into a model which is set out by Strabo in the geography, Greek geographer, where you have one people, then you have another people, then you have another people. It's sort of very much so sort of invasionist version of culture change, but culture change is actually far more complicated than the text set out. What was there, if no one there, geopolitical? So, so was it is it in this in in that period um, when the Samnites had hegemony in uh, in Pompeii, and really sounds like it was a it was a Samnite um, uh, city or uh, and or uh, community. So, what was the um, was it was it it was it considered a city state at at that point? Uh, and what was the, if known, the geopolitical relationship to other Samnite communities? I, I think what we can say is we, we could actually probably see the Samnites as having a confederacy where peoples join together for collective action every so often. Um, but we will probably see and, and this is something which we, we tend to see it from a Roman perspective. The Roman perspective is that, that they will have alliances with lots and lots of different people. And Pompeii would just be one of those towns which would be potentially, they might see that that's part of a Samnite world. But at the same time, if you were locally in Pompeii, it's actually much more your local town is the thing which you focus on. But you could see the building of the walls at, in Pompeii as an assertion of, of Samnite culture, but you could also see it as a response to the threat of Rome, that building these very defensive walls can be seen as a, a problem of instability and conquest, given that the Roman, Rome is an incredibly aggressive state. What I'm, what I'm uh, wondering too with that question was, if, if it's known to what degree um, they were... Like I guess I'm I'm presuming they were uh, interacting a lot with other other Samnites um, from other other parts of the peninsula. If there is a um, if there's certain commonalities there, but is it is that is that known if if they were if they were um, interacting in in some way and is is it in the records at all if there is if there is anything more formal. Um, you had mentioned. I think, I think we're. I, I think evidence-wise, we're pretty stuffed on this one, Andrew. Um, and it is one of those huge frustrations with ancient history, where always sort of you going, okay, so what's the relationship between even Pompeii in the Samnite period and Nola, the neighbouring town of Nola, which is literally down the road? Um, you can see that they're using the same construction techniques for their their wall building, their defensive walls. And they're almost unique, and but they are deriving that the concept of construction. Probably the closest one comes from the Samnite hill forts. So that takes us into a sort of technology which is very very similar. Um, we can also see them using what is called the Oscan foot as a measure rather than the Roman foot in in this period to lay out the city. So that that shows us sort of a certain level of cultural interaction, but we can't get at, okay, so what, what was Pompeii's relationship with the sanctuary of 
uh, Piatra Amodante up in the mountains, for example, we absolutely have no information on that. And th this is one of those huge frustrations which you, you run into in ancient history where the evidence just runs out. I mean, it's kind of reasonable because it was 2,500 years ago, uh, but it is one of those things you just want to know. How did all these people fit together? How does this site fit with that site? And you can trace things like um, cultural elements, like the walls I've just said, but you can also see they, they, they also have quite a strong relationship. If you think of the Bay of Naples, there are a lot of cities on the Bay of Naples. Herculaneum isn't very far away. Naples, Greek city isn't very far away. Across the bay, the Roman colony of Puteoli is, is right there as well. So within the Bay of Naples, you have what we would call very culturally distinct cities. And in some way, they have to interact as well, because otherwise the whole thing doesn't work. Yeah, and the point about um, certain things just not being in the records, that does come up with, with certain topics uh, on the show uh, quite commonly. So it's not a, uh, it's not the first, f first time. Um, but I, I got to ask the questions, Ray. I got to ask the questions. I mean, one of the things is, I, I think it's worth asking a question. And it's, it's important to just say, look, we can't know. There are things we can't know. I mean, there are so many things we, we can know, but every so often you're just like, going, actually, we can't get any further down that road. Um, you're just like going, or occasionally we find that there's a great case, I mean, it's not a Pompeii one, but which way did the temple of Apollo on the Palatine in Rome face? Now, what's happened in the literature is um, Peter Wiseman, this guy called, this uh, Swiss guy called Zink, have had this debate, but in actual fact, both of them produce a very compelling argument. But, but both of them could be wrong because, I mean, it, it's just like the argument is good, but the evidence will support both cases of that argument. And that, that's one of those sort of marvelous things in ancient history that we are putting fragments back together to try and create this world, which we think we can know, but then suddenly, okay, we don't know. And you've got to go, we don't know, because that's something which is, is important to realize that we can't know everything. Uh, tra trade. So what what exists um, for scholars today to understand the level of trade that they did with other communities? And what I'm getting at with that question is there certain is there certain products that that were left left over um, from an archaeological perspective that says, oh, yeah, this this particular products from this particular state or community. So we know that they must have had some form of relationship there. So what's what's known about uh, their their trading habits? What what we see in Pompeii, I mean, particularly from amphorae, uh, for transporting wine, also for transporting fish sauce, is we can start seeing the relationships of where did they import wine from? And certainly they were importing, certainly by the destruction levels of Pompeii, they were importing wine from um, parts of Greece, for instance, from um, Rhodes and the Greek islands of the Aegean. They were also drinking the local wine, which um, I think Pliny the Elder says is very cheap, but isn't very good. They also have high quality Italian wine there, Falernian, which costs 15 times as much as any other wine. And they have all of this material coming in. We can also look at some of the 
one of the big changes which we find in the just sheer variety of pottery vessels from the first century BC to the first century AD, there is almost an exponential um, change in terms of the variety, the type of pottery vessels which are being imported. So what we're seeing in that part of the Roman world is an explosion of goods almost in the first century CE. Um, first century BCE, it's starting, but you suddenly see this proliferation of material culture. And if you wanted a parallel, you could say the same about Britain in the 19th century, where suddenly there is just such a, a wealth of variety of material goods, which is a difference to a century before. So, so that's some change. They're, they're importing fish sauce. They're making fish sauce. The gara, which is involved in um, sort of ingestion of fish guts, which is a sort of very famous Roman product. They're importing that from Spain as well as producing their own. And this is something which is slightly confusing because we think that the transport cost of moving fish sauce from Spain to Pompeii to compete with a local product that would actually make it more expensive, but it is competing with that local product. So that level of, that sort of trade or whether that fish sauce tastes different if it's made in Spain, that's something which is going on today. I, we, we find this with, I, I'm always amazed at some of the things which turn up in Australia because, um, for instance, um, butter from Denmark, you can buy in the shops in Australia. It, it makes absolutely no sense because it's been transported across the world. And we think in terms of climate change, does that make any sense? But it is one of those things which is, is available. And I think the Roman world has a certain parallel where movement of goods is something which is, Pompeii is right on the coast of the Bay of Naples. It's completely connected into the, the Greek world, into North Africa, into Italy, it is very much so sort of a cosmopolitan city. Do you want to cover next, Ray, how they eventually became a Roman community? Pompeii became a Roman community by simply the Romans besieged the city, they took the city, and then they settled veteran soldiers there. So we see this two-deal community um, in the 70s BCE, uh, which is doing several things which are classically Roman. They build an amphitheater, they build a covered theater, um, and they build baths, they re reconfigure the forum. So what they're clearly doing is they're restructuring the city around what they wanted. So there was a temple in the forum in the pre-Roman period, but they set up, up a Capitolium to Jupiter, with dedicated to Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva, the, the triad of the Roman gods. And so there's a lot of reconfiguration going on, but you can also see quite a lot of continuity. And that continuity comes up in surprising ways because we find that even in 79 AD, 79 CE AD, that the carts we find in, in Pompeii, the measurements to make those carts are all in Austin feet rather than in Roman feet. So there is quite a lot of continuity there, but it's quite subtle. And this, this is one of the problems because this community grows together. We hear from Cicero in a speech that the Pompeians and the Roman settlers 
had a dispute about suffrage as in voting rights and they also had a dispute about something which is very difficult to interpret because he uses the word ambulatio or walkway and this could be like a palaestra maybe which is shut off for the roman population it's open to every interpretation because it's such a small snippet so initially we can see a lot of um, when the roman colonists arrive there's a lot of tension clearly they are imposing their own culture including the oldest um, surviving amphitheater is built at that time and if you think of what an amphitheater is about an amphitheater is about punishing people so it is a very very strong statement in terms of imposition of roman culture imposition of roman discipline so that that gives us a sort of sense of that conflict now cicero says in his speech about a uh, um, 20, 30 years later, that this has all been overcome as though it was no longer a problem. And this is something which we see in Italy, that how does Italy um, be become this Roman space in that period of time? We see the disappearance of the Oscan language and the replacement with Latin. That happens right across Italy as well as in Pompeii. So that creates quite a, a culture which is really sort of bound into the Roman world but at the same time, you have that underlying Italian culture, which is in the city. So the city fabric is really sort of trans uh, transformed. And, and the Sabine, War, Sabine fortifications are still there. So a lot of continuity there, but a lot of difference. What year was the siege? Oh, God. Or, or, or approximately? <laughs> I'm just, I'm terrible at dates. I should look this up. I, I can't okay. remember, Andrew, to be it's honest. It's okay. And where I'm getting at that, is it is it tied to the the social war at all? Yes, it is. It, it's absolutely tied to the social war. Um, I'm hoping it's 89 BC, BCE. But, so certainly in by 70 BCE, we will have the amphitheater built and the major structures which are Roman in that. Okay. And, and you sufficiently put the disclaimer in there around the date, right? Don't worry. The, uh, were, they, were they given citizenship by, by 70 BCE? This, this is something we don't really know. I, this, this is one of those things where we know there's a dispute about voting rights, but we don't know what the resolution is. Now, by a later period, we know that everyone in Poland is a Roman citizen, they everything they have citizen rights in that way. But um, initially, there are all sorts of theories about how those communities existed after the social war. Did they have they have a sense of identity of the Pompeians and the Romans, which survives into Cicero's time? And that is sort of critical that we've seen this division. Now, what happens by the time of Augustus in Italy is Augustus has this idea of the whole of Italy. And this is what we see in terms of Roman identity and the, the transformation around it. Because if you start looking at Vitruvius on architecture, you find that what Vitruvius contrasts is what is what happens in Italy in terms of architecture and what happens in Greece. He doesn't say this is Roman architecture. He says, this is what we do in Italy. So 
there's this concept of Romanness and Italianness um, is something which is very strong in the conflict between Rome and the Italian allies of the Social War. But by the end of the century, they, I mean, writers are talking about Italy as a place much more than they will talk about the Romans doing things as a state, but they will also talk about a culture of Italy in terms of cultural values. So that, that's, that's the sort of the, the shifting ideas about identity in that period. And, and I, I think this is something which you, you sort of think of all the writers of Roman writers. Now, nearly all of them weren't born in Rome itself. So we think of Livy as that great writer of history of Rome, but he's, he's born in Patavium in northern Italy. So this gives us a sort of strong idea of what's going on in this, how people are thinking about their identity. They can be part of a Roman state with Rome as the capital, but and also be Roman citizens, but then can talk of themselves as this is what we do in Italy culture. You provided a great segue for the next question. I was and am going to ask, uh, is there any uh, writers from Pompeii actually b born or lived most of their life in Pompeii that 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 survives those those uh, those writings? Uh, no, we don't. Uh, we we absolutely don't have a Pompeian writer. We have lots of writers who wrote on the walls of Pompeii. We have epigrams from Pompeii, for example. We have quotes from Virgil produced in Pompeii, particularly the first lines. Um, as graffiti. So clearly, uh, the Pompeians are literate, they're reading stuff, and they're also writing it out on the walls, in very small letters, in fact. But there is no actual writer from Pompeii which survives into the modern world. Yeah, and let's, before we work our way to the end of the, the period um, that we're talking about today, let's... Uh... Yeah, let's cover the, the, the writing just a bit more then. So can you can you summarize, if you were to summarize and categorize the, the writings or inscriptions that have survived uh, in, in Pompeii, um, can you go over what, what the, the, those kind of topics would be? It could be from a, like a narrative or a historical or maybe records or funerary. Can you, can you describe what, uh, what's there? Okay, so I'm, what we have quite a lot of is we have building inscriptions, we have building inscriptions referring to female priests, priestesses who are building some of the largest buildings in Pompeii, clearly have a lot of money, um, a lot of disposable money. And that is one of those things which we see quite frequently. We also have building inscriptions of a, a temple for Augustan fortune, which the, the builder says he built it on his own land. So we have very, very specific things which we can link into the buildings. We then have statue bases. We have lots and lots of statue bases to the important town councillors. Uh, we have a unique in the Temple of Isis, outside the Temple of Isis, right in the doorway into the precinct. We have this extraordinary inscription which commemorates a a six-year-old after the earthquake of 62 um, CE, a six-year-old decided to rebuild the um, Temple of Isis. And because he did that, he was elected to the town council as a six-year-old. Uh, the inscription may have been put up considerably later when he was older, 
but that gives us a real flavor of and we find also in some of the funerary records we have an eight-year-old who's a town councillor we have children involved in the town council now if we're going to look in the, the walls of pompeii we also have lots of electoral notices please vote for so and so he for to be edile he's a very good young man or so-and-so is the great giver of games, you should elect him. Or um, another person is described as he will bring you good bread. But And then we have some rather sort of the totally fascinating, like the gold workers ask for you to elect so-and-so. But there are also this other little group called the late drinkers. So again, incredible um, sort of veracity about, so these are painted notices on the outside of walls. They're very beautiful, beautiful letters. And then if we go down into the graffiti, the graffiti, most of them are literally somebody's name. We also have alphabets written by children. We have stick figures as though um, children in a lot of schools across, uh, across the world are asked in primary school to draw a stick picture of themselves. And they are just like the ones from Pompeii. Um, and then we have also sexual insults. Um, of people, I mean, the brothel in Pompeii famously has 156 um, graffiti, which are mostly about like I, I, there are lots of things that they have puns on Baini Bibi Biki, they have Baini um, Futui Domi, I came, I had sex, I went home. So there, there is this huge richness of, and we have about probably at least 5,000 graffiti from Pompeii recorded now. And that in, in itself, but most of them are somebody's name. I mean, it's literally writing your name and that act of writing is very important. So, so this, this gives us sort of quite a, a visual world of writing, which is, is literally in the fabric of the archaeology. And you mentioned, um, was it Virgil's, the Aeneid? There's, there's a, a few lines. From from uh, from from that um, from that uh, piece. Yeah, they, they we have um, lines from from Virgil, but we also have and this is also the the thing which isn't made known so much is that we also have some sort of quite unique um, local epigrams as well. That sort of okay. There are clearly local poets around who don't survive in that manuscript record from Rome. So, so those are also in there. So, I there's a famous line from Virgil: "I sing of arms and the man." Um, it's adopted by a fuller. He says, "I sing of an owl," and he talks about fully because the the cleaning of cloth. So. They're playing with language in a rather clever way, and there are lots of jokes in there. And how we deal with jokes as historians, or how do we deal with graffiti because it's so ephemeral, um, but it's so vivid in terms of how people live. So that that's something which is so different from the the sort of manuscript tradition of ancient texts of Tacitus or Suetonius or even Seneca, who who did know the Bay of Naples. Coincidentally, one of the few books I brought with me to Tunisia uh, was uh, Virgil's Aeneid. Mm, right, so, so you've got it with you. So you've been reading it. 
Well, I've, I've read it. Yeah, I've read it before, but I've, I'm uh, it, go, going through it again uh, a second time. But I just thought there was a, um, a happy coincidence uh, there because you had uh, you had mentioned uh, Vir Virgil um, in, in, in your response. Um, the the, the uh, one more question about the about the inscriptions and such. What's what's the language or languages that uh, they were they were written in? Um, they're, they're written in Oscan, Latin, and also we have some in Greek as well, but mainly in Latin. The, the strongest language in Pompeii is certainly Latin by the time of its destruction. Um, the Oscan inscriptions probably survived from an earlier time, and but nearly all of the graffiti are in Latin. It is the dominant language. You have a bit of Greek, but not, not that much. Okay. So working our way to the first century CE, and um, I believe you mentioned um, the, the event that occurred in, in one of your first responses, um, but to cover it at, at, in a little more detail at the end of this conversation, what, what happened uh, with Pompeii? Pompeii in the first century CE, we have, um, we have an earthquake in 62 CE, which is pretty devastating. The volcanologists tell us it was probably on the Richter scale at a seven. So a lot of destruction. And we see this in the archaeological record where if, we, if you went to Pompeii today or been to Pompeii today, if you look for bricks, because bricks are one of the materials which is coming into Pompeii towards the end of its life. And what you see in a lot of buildings is you find the corners have got a brick patch and the patching or the rebuild of after destruction of the earthquake in the 17 years leading up to the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 CE. Now, this period is of a massive rebuild across the city. They, they weren't holding back by any means. They built a new bath complex, which was not finished, which would have window glass because window glass had become um, much more prolific by the first century CE. So if we think of the change in bathing patterns in um, Roman Italy, if you look, but went back to the second century BCE, you'd be bathing in basically in, in the dark, but with um, oil lamps. By the first century CE, you would have huge windows. Some of them would be double glazed, for example, and you would be bathing in the light. And that, that's a massive change in terms of social practice. The, the scale of the rebuild is massive. The forum is being rebuilt. The houses have been rebuilt and they're doing some restructuring of the amphitheater. They're doing a little, little patching up. So the city's rebuilding itself. Then we find in 79 CE. Now, the, the, the sort of thought that Vesuvius was an extinct volcano is very much so in the, the literary text, which we have, and its explosion and this, this massive explosion, which, which happens in 79 CE. Um, the eruption involves material being shot out of the volcano up into space, basically. Now, that column up into space, it's producing all this material out of the Earth. Eventually, um, it's, it's countering gravity fairly successfully to get it up into space. 
but there is a point where the column drops. Now, if you think of all that volcanic material which is deposited on Pompeii, that's been up in the sky, basically. So when that column collapses, the movement when it comes down to Earth is running at something like 20 meters per second. So if you tried to run away, you wouldn't make it because you can't run that fast. And that comes down out off the mountain in several surges. The column of volcanic material collapses about three or four times. The fourth one, I believe, is the one which wipes out Pompeii. So it comes from the north, it follows the ground, and it literally slices off everything in the upstairs, the second story of the building, and moves things colossally. In Herculaneum, we have one of the biggest pieces of marble, which is literally hurled across a room. Um, for the people who are still in the city, they would die very, very quickly. Um, and that is what happens in terms of just sheer destructive force is what we see in the archaeological record. How much notice do, um, is it believed that inhabitants would have had from the, uh, from the time of the eruption? I think what's clear, I mean, we have two letters of Pliny. Um, he writes to the historian Tacitus about the, um, the eruption, but also what he did to try and escape. What becomes clear is on by midday, um, he sat with Pliny the Elder, who's in charge of the fleet um, in Mazenum, and they noticed what they described as an umbrella pine um, shape uh, coming out of the out of Vesuvius. And Pliny the Elder actually hears a messenger comes from um, the flanks of Vesuvius to his house saying, there is a real problem that the there is something you could need to do about. And he launches the fleet to try and rescue people, which is um, so they have, and then Pliny talks about things turning dark and night and day being confused. It's quite a literary account, but what we would see is they knew in the morning and midday that the eruption was happening. Now, we find some skeletons, we find skeletons in groups, we don't find skeletons all hiding in the houses, we find some hiding in the houses. So it's clear that some people left. We also find in quite a few kitchens, you don't find very many cooking implements because if you're going to um, leave somewhere in a disaster zone, I mean, we, we know this from other eruptions in the modern age, is what you take with you is cooking pots for that night because you've got to eat. So these are the things that you take away and sometimes we don't find them in the archaeological record. So they have some notice, but... and. How many people got away, we, we just won't know. Um, the other thing which we we probably haven't recovered where all these people went because we haven't excavated extensively beyond the walls of Pompeii because leaving the city, you would leave the city because it's actually all falling over anyway. It was a hugely dangerous place during the initial stages of the eruption and multiple earthquakes. There were tsunamis. You have the full volcanic works of uh, probably a fairly apocalyptic um, experience, basically, in terms of the violence of a volcano in, in, that, in those circumstances. This has been a fascinating uh, conversation today, Ray. Thank you for coming on the show.
And it's been a pleasure, Andrew. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Lawrence wrote, he's author of Roman Pompeii, Space and Society, and he's co-author of Pompeii, The Living City. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Ray and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.